Well, it really is a privilege to be here. Uh, gotten to know Daniel over the last couple of years and really grateful that he had uh, the gumption to try and put together a fire conference uh, for um, the New England or the, the this area, the Northeast. Uh, the first fire conference I ever went to was in Rutland, Vermont. Hugh Diggins, who was supposed to be at this conference, was the pastor of that church. That was about 20 years ago. And then the last Northeast Conference was held in Canada, just outside of Hamilton, Ontario, and uh, uh, was a wonderful time. And now it's reviving thanks to the efforts and the vision of of Daniel, so I'm most grateful for it. And uh, we certainly were blessed last night. I, I so appreciated Kenny's ministry to us and I'll try not to repeat uh, as much of what he gave us as I had already written down. Uh, but I took copious notes, so we'll, we'll see if it works. If you would uh, open your Bibles with me, please, and I'd like to read uh, a healthy portion to bring us into this morning's text, verse 10 of chapter 2. I want to start in chapter 1, verse 1, and read all the way through uh, down to our uh, conference texts. Uh, if you'd like to stand, that would be great, but I understand not everybody can. Don't worry about it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, 
Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy, And all slander, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The theme that we have been given for this conference is from darkness to light. And one of the most uh, prominent features of the darkness of our present culture 
is the deep confusion that prevails in terms of identity. We see it everywhere. And Kenny opened this theme of identity for us last night when he was unpacking verse 9. He began to give us the four cornerstones of the identity as it is in Christ. And if you will, he was citing, uh, I kind of paraphrased where you went with us here, he gave us four things here. We have a new spiritual ethnicity as a chosen race, a new spiritual vocation as a royal priesthood, a new spiritual citizenship as a holy nation, and a new spiritual purpose, and that is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, which Kenny emphasized needs to be done both by our lips and by our lives. Those are the the four cornerstones that we're standing on today. And this stands in complete contrast to the context in which we live in America today. In terms of, of our identity, our culture at present can't even define what a man or a woman is. What you would think is just normative and, and plain and simple to everyone. And how we think of ourselves is vitally important. It's important for our relationship to God, and it's important for our relationship to one another and to the world as a whole. And so if we don't live in the light of what the scripture says humankind is, let alone Christians, made in the image of God and is male and female, then we live in a really gloomy darkness for sure. And we don't even have to be in the midst of a cultural shift like we're going through in America right now uh, to, for this to be a concern for us. The disorienting darkness of a loss of identity can descend even on the saints at times. For any who have undergone tragedy, maybe the loss of a spouse or a child, maybe a dire diagnosis or an unwanted divorce, the loss of a job, devastation by a natural disaster or the like, For any of us who have suffered those kinds of upheavals upheavals in life, you know that that sense of who you are suffers at the same time. Trauma disorients. It's that simple. And the structures around you that, that gave context to life, they change. And in turn, you find yourself needing to rebuild that sense of who you are but we tend to do it out of the fragments that are left over from the things that we still identify with. The chief problem in all of that is that we tend to take those, our identity from those around us and from the culture or simply from our feelings and imaginations, trying to re-cement ourselves, reaffirm ourselves. And to a certain extent, that's understandable and it's, it's right. But if we do this, failing to consider the one who made us for his own purposes and what he has to say about it, then we really do founder miserably. Uh, We'll grope around in this darkness which seems to have seized our present culture and generation in what may well be unprecedented ways. Those six great philosophical questions that haunt every human being, whether we address them consciously or not, are who am I, where did I come from, 
How did I get to be the way I am? Why am I here? Where's everything going? And what do I do with the problem of suffering in life? And so our identity is not simply a theme that appears throughout Scripture. It does. It carried special emphasis in this first letter of Peter to the people that he's addressing. From the very first verse, Peter uses identity language for his first readers to bring that first light to bear on all the rest. Kenny addressed this again last night, that we, we need the light of this in drawing our identity from the scripture and from what God says about us and not from the external things that we might have. I'm going to explore that more in just a minute, but note again, uh, repeating a little bit from last night, how beginning back in verse 1, Peter addresses his readers as elect exiles. And then he goes on in verse 2 to remind them how they came to be elect through the foreknowledge of God and his purposes in saving them. And then in 3 through 5, he addresses the living hope that yet lies before all believers and how they're being kept by God's power, even in their exiled situation. In 12 through 13, he reminds them that their salvation is so astonishing that even angels want to look into it. And then that that as believers, they're to use all this and, and these realities to prepare their minds for action, what he calls being sober-minded, and being sober-minded to set their hope fully on the grace that's to be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ, not necessarily the fixing of their external situations. So much preaching and teaching today is all focused around how you can have the best things going on in your life right now. You know, the best wife, the best car, the best house, the best job, For us, in ministry, the best ministry. We're looking for a little bit of over-realized eschatology. How can we have that that taste of heaven now? And we're supposed to have a taste of it, but we don't possess it yet. We're betrothed to Christ, but the marriage supper of the Lamb hasn't yet occurred. And so there there needs to be a a divide in our minds so that we understand that a little better, being sober-minded. So the question is, why for Peter... This emphasis and identity is Kenny brought out to us last night. And it's the context of Peter's first readers that really gives us the clue, that helps us understand exactly what's going on. We know, for instance, that Peter was martyred uh, probably in Rome during the mid-60s, during Emperor Nero's reign. We're pretty sure of that. So these letters, these two, 1st and 2nd Peter, had to be written sometime before then. And we know, uh, as the text itself tells us, that Peter writes to a people who are scattered. And they're scattered throughout five regions, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, for a, a way of conceptualizing that, that's an area in northern, what would be northern Turkey today, and it spans nearly 129,000 square miles. To put that for comparison's sake, California is 159,000 square miles. So they were spread out over this huge area. Um, and, and 
Additionally, this portion of Turkey, this northern portion that he's writing to, was far less Hellenized and far less civilized than the southern portion where Paul had already had so much success in his missionary journeys. And these were tribal territories. They weren't well settled. They had religions and cultures that were totally foreign to those who might have been raised either in the Roman-occupied Israel or other parts of the Roman Empire. Karen Jobes, in her wonderful commentary on this, writes, quote, the picture that emerges of the regions to which Peter wrote is one of a vast geographical area with small cities few and far between, of a diversified population of indigenous peoples, Greek settlers and Roman colonists, the residents practiced many religions, spoke several languages, and were never fully assimilated into the Greco-Roman culture. Whether you know it or not, it was the policy of Roman emperors to bring their culture to new areas by means of colonization. This wasn't anything new, but what they would do is transport or transplant Romanized people into these new regions. And typically, they did this in groups of about 300. They take 300 people and put them in this place and 300 over in this place. And usually, they were the poor and disenfranchised, uh, freed slaves or undesirables due to their ethnicity or some other thing that made them an undesirable. And this has particular bearing on Peter's probable audience here. We know, for instance, that in 42, um, Emperor Claudius, who reigned from 41 to, 4, to 54, he did two things relative to what I just talked about. First, he established cities and colonies in all of the five regions that Peter opens the book addressing. So we know that he had already done that by the time Peter writes this. And secondly, we know that Claudius tolerated the Jews in Rome only as long as they avoided three things. He was pretty emphatic about this. They were not to disturb the peace by public preaching. They were not to oppose the accepted morals of the culture. And third, they were not to try and convert anyone. Now, this was problematic. Christians, who at that time were considered a Jewish sect by the emperor, who weren't looked at yet as a, as a separate group, they violated all three of these. And they had to kind of by Christ's command. This is what we're to do. And then we know that in the early 40s, Claudius attempted to expel all the Jews from Rome. And so the Christians, as a subset of the Jews, as troublemakers and as people who didn't assimilate very well. They didn't follow these three dicta that he had laid down. That's probably what you have mentioned for you in Acts chapter 18. You'll recall, well, let me read just quickly, uh, Acts 18, 1 and 2. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So we're interacting with those realities. The most likely scenario is that Peter is writing to these displaced mainly Jewish Christians, 
who were banished to these wild, sparsely populated areas, specifically because they violated the social construct of the day. That construct, again, required them, one, to keep their religion private, two, to accept the morals of the moment, and three, to leave other religious views alone. In modern times, their great crime was they were politically incorrect, just like Christians would be viewed in our current society. The Jews were already a problem in not assimilating, and the Christians were even worse, because we already had a command to go out and carry the gospel into all the world and to stand morally against the moral evils of the world. So by the time we reach this text that we're examining in the conference, we get much of this identity language heaped up in an, in an endeavor to bring order to what had become a very disordered place for these Christians who had been expelled. And irrespective of their circumstances, as we've already heard, they were, as we heard preached last night, they were Christians and they therefore were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession and set apart specifically to make the excellencies of him known, the one who had called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. So once they were not a people, verse 10, but now they are a people. Even in their exile, they're still a people. And even in their their distress, they had received mercy. These were all things meant to cement in them a sense of identity that would remain true irrespective of any external circumstances. Might I say this is extremely timely for us? Western culture as we know it is crumbling. And there's nothing in scripture that says it has to survive. But Christians, if we take our identity from Western culture, we will be as swamped in that demise as we can possibly be. Our identity must be rooted someplace else. This This is why Peter is writing to them. Their situation was an awful lot like what we're in right now with the current moral revolution. And when I say moral revolution, there's a theologian, British theologian, Theo Hobson. He writes that a moral revolution requires three conditions to be considered a true revolution. First, that which was once condemned is now celebrated. Second, that which was once celebrated is now condemned. And third, those who will not join in the celebration are condemned. Welcome home. This is us. This is exactly what's going on. And it's why this letter is vastly important to us right now, why I'm grateful that that these passages were chosen for us. So, building on the foundation that Kenny laid for us last night, I want to consider a little more in depth the wonder of just what this 10th verse imports for us. And there are two main questions I want to try and I want to ask and then try to answer. First, what these two appellations mean to Christians in light of our salvation. In other words, 
What does it mean that we were once not a people but now are? And what does it mean that we had once not received mercy but now have? And then secondly, what does this tell us about our God and Savior, Jesus Christ? That's how I want to proceed. So first, what these two appellations mean to Christians right now in light of our salvation. Now, if you're a good student of your Bible, that first phrase ought to look really familiar to you, as familiar as it would have to Peter's original audience, because it's a citation from Hosea 1 and 2. Again, uh, last night, Kenny showed us how how Peter was already drawing from Exodus and from Isaiah to build these foundations, and he's moving on. He's, he's drawing these Old Testament concepts in so that they're connecting with their Bibles, the only Bible they had at this point. And here he quotes directly from Hosea. And it's a portion that's picked up by Paul in Romans 9 as well as by Peter here. And so by the, by the Spirit, Peter is communicating a huge amount, amount in just a few words. And this happens not only in Scripture, it happens in our culture as well. If I were to just simply say to you, 9-11 or COVID-19, that brings a whole context with it. You don't just think of, of individual events. You think of an era, and you think of all the things that have grown out of that, that that, that, that contains an entire perspective. To this day, we live in the shadow of those two things and the extended ramifications of them. You don't have to give all the details because the facts are well known. They, they immediately come to mind. They're all implied. And it should be the same with this quotation from Hosea. For Jewish believers familiar with their Old Testament, the mere quote would conjure up the entire scenario in which that statement was originally made. And they're meant to draw from that scenario, to pull it all together. So let's go back and rehearse a little bit of that so that we get their mindset in the process. As Peter's hoping we'll do that, the Spirit's intending for us to do that. So you'll recall that Hosea was the last prophet to Israel, the northern kingdom, before it was decimated by the Assyrians. And similar to what Claudius had done in expelling the Jews and the Christians from Rome, Assyria had the habit of relocating much of Israel's populace to Assyria itself, and vice versa. We read about this in 2 Kings 17. And so they were, the Jews at that point, the Israelites, they were in exile. And then you think of the naming of Hosea's three children in this whole thing. Because, that, again, these are details that are going to play into how they would understand. Why would he quote from Hosea in this place? Is it just snatched out of the air? No, he's, he's got a very purposeful reason for this. Hosea's firstborn, by God's command, was named Jezreel. And you know this, Jezreel was a region. It was a location in Israel that was notorious for acts of wickedness and violence. Just a couple of examples. It's where Jezebel had Naboth murdered so that Ahab could have his land for a, for a vegetable garden. It was a pretty awful scenario. 
It was the place where Jehu murdered an heir to the throne and then buried him in Jezreel. More, it's the place where Jezebel herself would finally die after she was thrown out of a tower and trampled to death by horses. And all 70 sons of Ahab were slaughtered in Jezreel. So God naming, saying to Hosea, name your first child Jezreel, he's saying a lot. He was highlighting Israel's wicked state, the condition they had fallen into. And then he has a second child. The second born is a girl. And God says to name her Lo-Ramah, which the text itself in Hosea tells us means no mercy. God was telling them, I'm fed up with your sin. You've fallen into this idolatry and this violence and this wickedness, and I'm telling you, I will not have mercy on you any longer. I'm going to bring the Assyrians to crush you. Really a startling thing. And then there's a third-born child, another son. And God says to name him, Lo am I, not my people. God would no longer consider them as his people. Literally, in the Hebrew, the text says, I will not be there I am. I mean, it's as, as harsh and as bleak as it can possibly get. It's a tragic state of affairs. And the big picture is this. God loved and betrothed himself to Israel, but the, was spiritually, Israel was spiritually adulterous by virtue of her idolatry. And as holy as a husband as he was to her, their union issued in violent and wicked offspring. And so in judgment, he says, I'm going to remove mercy from you. And so she will be called no mercy. And he wrote her a bill of divorcement so that she would no longer bear his name and be called not my people. Now, if it ended there, we'd be in big trouble. But when you jump to Hosea 1.10 through 2.1, God immediately, on the heels of making these pronouncements, on the heels of this, says, still there will be a day when he will again declare them to be his people and that they will receive mercy and that they will have innumerable offspring. And the point for the first readers of this text is really powerful. The idea is, and and this is by way of contrast, if the above were true for the disobedient Israel, then how much more secure are these who were exiled because they were, in fact, being faithful. Not being unfaithful, but being faithful. They'll find help and encouragement and fullness of his promises attending them. It's the same logic of comparison that Jesus uses a number of times in the Gospels. Uh, for instance, in Matthew 6, you'll remember he's, he's in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. He says that we're not to be anxious about our lives and and what we'll eat or drink or know about our bodies, what we'll wear. And then he says this, quote, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? 
And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So if God can show mercy and grace to those exiled for their sin, I think Peter's point is, how much more for those who are exiled for their fidelity to Christ? He means this to draw from that Old Testament, some real sense of comfort. When God saves the lost, when he saved you, uh, he has such mercy on us for our former sins that we're not only forgiven, but, but we're then made recipients of a truly amazing grace in that we who were strangers and aliens to God and to his covenants and promises are brought in to inherit all of it. We are a mercied and graced people. And Peter is saying to his readers, yes, I know you're exiled. I know your circumstance. But your identity isn't in your circumstance. It's in the fact that you are a mercied and graced people by the living God. And you've got to see yourself in that context. When God saves us, He saves us from being not his people to making us his people. I I always love the contrast that Paul brings out in Ephesians chapter 2 when he sets what it looked like before we were saved and then what it looks like after we come to the knowledge of salvation. Before we were in Christ, we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of mankind. We were separated from Christ and then aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, not his people, strangers, to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What a triple threat. Having no hope without God and plunged into this wicked, violent world. We could not have been any more not his people if we tried. And so it is in salvation we're made alive in Christ. That's where Paul goes next. We're saved from the just wrath of God. We're raised up to be seated with Christ in heavenly places. We're destined to be the object of his making us experience the immeasurable riches of his kindness toward us in Christ for all the coming ages. Can you imagine that? That God has designed for you as one who's redeemed by his blood, that his great joy is to see to it that for all eternity you get to enjoy his kindness, to lavish in it, to roll around in a bottomless, endless ocean of his kindness toward you. We're his workmanship. We're his divinely crafted treasure 
created for good works that we might walk in them, and brought near to God by the blood of Christ, reconciled to God through the cross, and at peace with God, and then he brings it home to the same point here, fellow citizens with the saints of the household of God, his family, and built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now that, friends, is an identity, and we lose it. One of the noetic effects of sin is that we do not keep static in our minds profound spiritual truth. We've got to go back and rehearse it over and over and over again. We are leaky buckets. Years ago, I wrote in the flyleaf of my Bible that it is in the aftermath of great trials and God's deliverance that I craft a more perfect theology, which I promptly forget the next time I'm in trouble. Maybe you had the same experience. We know these truths, but they don't, they don't seem to inform our everyday life and, and perspective. Unlike the world, we have an entirely different context for understanding who and what we are, and one that cannot be taken from us by any external circumstance. If we're careful, from the most educated, erudite, and wealthy to the most uneducated, impaired, and impoverished, we are Christ's, and we are a mercied and a graced people. The old Puritan John Flavel said the most eagle-eyed philosophers are but children in knowledge compared with the most illiterate Christians. So it is Peter is leaning on this wonderful dual reality that once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this as unwrapping how it's not contradictory that they can be both exiles and elect, as we heard last night. He's helping them and us gain a true sense of our biblical identity in Christ. So those first read, for those first readers, this perspective is absolutely vital to living with any sense of peace and joy and hope, given what appeared to be outwardly an absolutely hopeless and dismal circumstance. Yes, he says to them, you're exiles, but you're also elect of God. And we have to read all those previous parts of chapter 1, and that's why we needed that context again this morning into it. All of this is according to the foreknowledge of God. He, he had all this in store. He's not surprised. There's that old tale told about uh, Abraham Lincoln. I don't know if it's true or not. It's apocryphal. But um, it, it, during the height of the British Empire, it was said that the, the sun never sets on the British Empire. And Abraham Lincoln quipped, that's because God can't trust them alone in the dark. Uh, I, God doesn't get up in the morning and, and scratch his head and say, oh, what those humans did last night while I was asleep. He's not shocked by anything. He's not shocked by the trial you're going through right now. You are as much elect and exiled according to his foreknowledge as everything else that happens in our lives. All this is intended to be used by the Spirit in our sanctification even as we've been set apart to be sprinkled with the blood of Christ and, and we have this living hope through Christ's resurrection from the dead, it's absolutely made sure. 
And so we're in this process of waiting for that imperishable, undefiled, and perpetually fresh inheritance that's stored up in heaven and that is being kept for us even as we are being kept by the power of God. We've been ransomed from the futile ways of our forefathers by the blood of the Lamb and born again of imperishable seed and being built up as a spiritual house for God, a chosen race, as we heard last night, a royal priesthood, a people for God's personal possession and called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received his amazing mercy. That's who you are, Christian. Pastor, struggling with a church that may be fragmented, especially in the aftermath of what's happened with COVID, where there's so much pushback, where so much politicization has made its way even into our churches and into our pews. That doesn't, that doesn't change one of these facts. These are the things we stick with. Nothing can alter them. And this tells us then that the facts surrounding our identity as Christ's no matter how the reference points of this world melt away, it's as it says in Psalm 46.2, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. If every reference point in the natural is removed from us, it doesn't change these fundamental realities. If the very ground we stand on were to evaporate, evaporate and all the markers by which we navigate life were tossed into the sea, we need not fear. Why? Because this is who we are in Christ. Because he's Lord. So those are the facts. And such facts are presented to us to tell us who we really are and to be secure in that. But more, they're presented to tell us deep things about God himself. If we just stop at the surface here, we, we lose something. We've not reached the real point of Peter's message quite yet until we come back and ask and answer the question, what does all this tell us about our God, about our Savior, about Jesus Christ? From the very first moment that God spoke, that he revealed himself to humankind, as he was about the business of revealing himself to humanity and revealing it to us as a special creation made in his image, we, we're under the impression, we come to know that the whole of Scripture is to be a revelation of who God is. Jesus affirmed this on, in John 5. He, you search the Scriptures because in them you think that you have salvation, but these are the things that bear witness about me. You come back to the Scripture to know me, not just to know facts, not just to know data, but to understand who and what I am, what my purposes are, where where I'm going with everything. And even after his resurrection, you'll remember his interchange with the two on the road to Emmaus. The, The primary content of all he does, Luke 24 gets it, quote, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, close quote. That was what was most important. Even the Old Testament scriptures were meant to reveal something of him. And and we get it even in another place. You're all familiar with Psalm 19. 
that the heavens declare the glory of God and day unto day utter speech, and there's no language where these things aren't understood? What, what are we supposed to deduce from the cosmos, from creation, as we look around it? Well, we pick up a number of things. First off, we pick up his existence by the very presence of the universe. Nothing is self-created. Nothing just popped into existence. It's foolishness. And, and we can understand his power when we see the arrangement of the universe and how it functions. We can understand his infinitude by the immensity of the universe. Why do they keep finding the universe more and more expansive? Because God himself is endless. He says, I want you to get some some grasp of how vast I am. It's not how big the universe is, it's how big I am. We find out his creativity by looking around at nature. I often think about this when I look at the faces of some people. And let's face it, some people are funny looking. God's got a good sense of humor. He's creative in the way he makes us. It's wonderful. Some of us are beautiful in our own way. Others are more naturally beautiful. We see his wisdom in the laws of nature, his beauty by the beauty of nature, his goodness by the way that he provides for us and and the pleasures of nature. I'm ever grateful that God decided that our sustenance and food should taste good. He could have made us so that we subsisted on sawdust, but he didn't. I, for one, with Paul, buffet my body as often as I can. Because God has created food to taste good. That's that's what it's for. We understand his faithfulness by the regularity of how nature functions. And we we understand his holiness by the presence of the, the human conscience. And his personhood by the individuality of the human personality. His justice by the innate sense of ultimate justice and of right and wrong. And some could even argue for the knowledge of his triune nature from nature itself. This is the very theme of how Paul preaches on Mars Hill, isn't it? That God's not left himself without witness, that he's made himself manifest through what he's done for all these things by satisfying your heart in good seasons and sending rain and and all that came with it. But for all of his self-disclosure in nature, there are two things about God that remain hidden in him that he prizes about himself. And this specifically goes to the last statement that Kenny preached on last night in, in our bringing out the wonders, the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And those are the twin excellencies of mercy and grace. Once you had not received mercy... Now you have received mercy. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. And I want those two words, mercy and grace, to really soak into your hearts in a fresh way this morning. When all the world around us is mad and coming apart at the seams, as as pastors, which many of us here are, when personal difficulties and ministry challenges overwhelm us, when 
tragedy and disorienting trauma rip all semblance of normalcy from you. Know this, Christian, pastor, your God loves to reveal himself above all else. He's merciful and gracious. Those are not sappy words. They are powerful words. Do you remember Moses' second trip up Mount Sinai? He had smashed the tablets the first time, and now he's got to go up the second time. And this time he pleads with God, show me your glory. And I think you can hear a little chortle in God's voice when he says, Moses, (laughs) you can't see me and live. (laughs) I can't do that. But but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll put you in this cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand, because about all you can stand is to see me trailing off in the distance. Other than that, you'd be obliterated by the vision of it. So, so let me do that. I'm going to do it. And then he says, in the process, I'm going to declare my glory to you. If, if you've got your Bible, turn there just quickly. You, you must. It's Exodus chapter 34. Um, you, you all know your Bibles well. It won't take you long to get to Exodus 34. I was preaching once, and I asked people to turn to Hezekiah 4.3, and you should have heard the pages flip. It was a little weird. Okay. Exodus 34, picking up in verse 5. So the Lord passes by. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord... The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. But go back. What's the leading edge? You can't miss it in the text. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious. Before anything else, I want you to know this, Moses. I am a merciful and a gracious God. He could have, like in the vision of Isaiah, started off with his holiness in the superlative, elevated to the third degree, but he doesn't. Instead, he starts here. Grasp this, Moses. You're going to be leading a really messed up group of people. It's as if he came to each pastor here and said, listen to me, you're going to be leading a bunch of messed up people. And you're messed up. But I'm a merciful God. And I am a Gracious God. How greatly he delights in showing those things. It's something that Jesus opens up for us in a a wonderful way in a discussion with the Pharisees in Matthew 9. There we're told that he was reclining at table in, in a house and many tax collectors and sinners had come to eat and with Jesus and with his disciples. 
And, and when the Pharisees saw this, they, they said to his disciples, well, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when he heard this, he overheard this, he said, well, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. He loves to show mercy. But mark it well. Mercy means nothing to those who are not guilty. It's one of those great paradoxes of the Christian life. We never stop searching out our need for the mercy so that we know the depths of the mercy. We never start seeing ourselves as self-sufficient and and all cleaned up. Y'all know you've heard scuba gear? And you know scuba is an acronym? Stands for self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. Man was made to live in constant dependence upon God. We don't grow into independence. We grow into more and more dependence. It was independence that brought the fall apart. Now we're, we're moving in the opposite direction. And the Christian is the only one who can safely look into the black abyss of remaining sin in his own soul and do it safely because he knows the mercy and the grace of his God. And then he grows in the knowledge of that mercy and grace. What's that mercy look like? You know what it looks like. It's the cross. It's Jesus dying in the place of helpless, rebellious, violent, vile sinners like you and me. What if you owned the finest, most luxurious mansion on the planet. And one day, I came along. Actually, it would be better if Tony came along, because this is more in keeping with his character. He came along and he burglarized it. (laughs) And vandalized it. And then brutalized your family. And graffitied every wall, calling you every filthy and derogatory name he could think of and falsely accusing you of every vile thing imaginable. And then upon being caught and convicted, you as the owner stood up in court and defended him and argued for his release. You refused to press any charges at all. And you, you tell him, I forgive you for all that you've done. And you don't owe me anything. I'll pay all the replacement costs and I'll do the restoration myself and you owe me nothing. I'll even pay for my own attorney and yours and I'll ask the court to set you free without any penalty whatsoever. That would be mercy. That would be mercy. He is a God of mercy toward the guilty when we own our guilt. And take Jesus as our sin bearer. But secondly, we see here that he's a God of grace. That far beyond the forgiveness of sin, 
he moves us over into the adoption of sonship. Once we were not a people, but now we are. It's one thing to release somebody from the penalty of their sins and based on that satisfaction made for those sins by the innocent intercessor. But it's quite another to reward those same persons as though they deserve all of heaven's riches based on what someone else deserves and then gives freely. So let me change the metaphor just a slight bit. Let's say it was my house that Tony burglarized, which is closer to the truth. And Tony, as the culprit, uh, a while after the trial and his acquittal, because I defended him, got him out, I invite him to my house for a meal. The very same house that he had defaced and burglarized and vandalized and where he had committed all those heinous acts. And when we're done with the meal, I look at him and I I hand him a key to the front door. And not just a key to the front door, I say, look, this place is as much yours as it is mine, so here's, here's a copy of the deed, too, and it's got your name on it. You, you can have this, too. It's as much yours as it is mine, and I want you to just come and enjoy it. And I'll pay for all the upkeep. I'll pay for the salaries of the servants and all the other expenses, including whatever you want to purchase for yourself. And, oh, by the way, as an adopted child, you have complete title to everything else I have. That's grace. That's grace. And what what belongs to everyone whose sin is hidden in Christ is this title to adoption, to sonship, to being his people. So in 1 John, John picks up that same theme and says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. See, that's far beyond just mercy for our sin. He makes us something else, and so we are. He says that's the reason why the the world doesn't know us. It's, It's because it didn't know him. And beloved, we are God's children even now. And on top of that, it has not yet appeared what we will be because because when we see him, we will be like him. For we'll see him as he is. Astounding. Paul picks up that same theme in Ephesians chapter 1. We don't have time to go through it now. What does it mean to be God's people? It's nothing short of adoption into his very family. Let me read an extended quote. This will be a little long. Bear with me. It's worth it. It's from John Flavel, the old Puritan. And he was waxing in a kind of of question and answer format about adoption. And let me just get you a little bit of, of how he conceived of this. It's astounding. He says, what is adoption? Answer. Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Get that? Question. What moves God to adopt any man? Answer. Nothing but his free love. Nothing but his free love. Question. What is the first property of adoption? Well, it is a costly 
relation. Because when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And what is the second property of adoption? Answer, it is a high and honorable relation. Because we're called the sons of God. Question, what is the third property of adoption? It is a free relation on God's part. He has chosen us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestined us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. He never saves a person grudgingly, but delightfully. Question, what is the fourth property of adoption? Answer, it is a permanent relation. Sixth, what is the first privilege of adoption? Answer, they have an interest in God as children do to their father. Question, what is the second privilege? Answer, being God's sons, they're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Question, what was the third privilege? Answer, seasonable and sanctified afflictions. That's something. As his children, we get to sanctify every affliction. It doesn't just happen to us. We get to take advantage of it. Question, what is the fourth privilege? The attendance and ministry of angels. Hebrews 1.14. Question, what is the fifth privilege? Answer, the assistance of the Spirit in prayer. And question, what use should we make of this? Answer, it teaches us to carry ourselves as children to our Heavenly Father, first in our imitation of Him, secondly in our submission to Him, thirdly in our dependence on Him, Believer, fellow pastor, I have absolutely no idea today what disorienting tragedy or tragedies you may have already faced or may be in the midst of now or may face down the line. But I will tell you that 1 Peter 2.10 shouts at you afresh. Remember this. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this may seem odd given this group, but I know that in any group of any size, Jesus had 12 and one of them was a devil. We've got more than 12 here. Maybe you're not even born again yet today. Maybe you don't know the salvation and the grace and the mercy that we've just been talking about here. But this is the Savior that we hold out to you. He is the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful. This is the salvation that he brings to any and all who own their wickedness and acknowledge that rebellion against his right to rule over us in every way 
and who repent of that and turn to him and place our trust in him and him alone, whose sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross has the power to cleanse you from all sin and to reconcile you to the Father. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for passages of Scripture like this. Sometimes at first gloss they may seem so simple. But there is this depth of wonder in every word that you utter. I know full well in my own life how in times of tragedy and circumstances unprepared for how the moorings can come loose. How we can drift and founder and begin to question, what is this all about? Who am I in the midst of these things? And by your grace, you come piercing through that darkness and speak to us in concrete terms and say, you're mine. I bought you. I cleansed you. I made you my own. Cling to this. Cling to me. Because heaven and earth can pass away, but my word cannot. It will endure forever. Father, anchor our hearts afresh there this morning, I pray. And for each and every one uh, that's here with us or may be listening through some other means, turn our eyes afresh upon Christ our Savior, we pray in his name. Amen.